Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. We're going to be looking today in chapter 15. I'll begin reading at verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 5. We'll get into our study. Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, reading to verse 5. Luke writes, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, let me develop again a foundation and all to bring us to chapter 15. I'll remind you of a few things we've already looked at here in the book of Acts. From the early days of the church, we've seen that Satan has worked in opposition to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's used various strategies to undermine its effectiveness. We've seen how he provoked religious leaders to attempt to silence its proclamation, how he instigated false believers, Ananias and Sapphira, to infect it with greed. He incited division between Hellenistic believers as well as native-born Jewish believers. He inspired two sorcerers, Simon and Elymas, to distort and resist the gospel. Simon tried to buy the Holy Spirit, and Elymas withstood the gospel as preached to the apostles. But in spite of this, the gospel was preached from Jerusalem and through Samaria. Peter had preached the gospel to a Gentile centurion, a man by the name of Cornelius, and Cornelius had, had gotten saved. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem had heard of this. They were concerned, and when Peter returned to Jerusalem, they asked, is this so? Now, perhaps they had forgotten Jesus' commission. Maybe they were unaware of what he had said in the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8, where he had said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me, he said, in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Paul would later write in Romans chapter 15, verse 12, Paul would write once more, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, one who will arise to rule over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will put their hope. Well, when the Jewish believers in Jerusalem had questioned Peter, he testified to them. He shared what happened, how God had baptized these, these Gentiles, Cornelius, his, his household, and those listening, how God had baptized them with the Holy Spirit. He said in, in Acts eleven seventeen and 18, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Now, when they heard these things, they became silent. They glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. So as we've been looking at the book of Acts, the door of salvation has been opened wide, both to the Jew as well as to the Gentile. We've seen how Paul and Barnabas have gone to various lands and cities, and they've been preaching the gospel. But as they're doing that, Jewish opposition has continued to increase, yet the Gentiles continue flooding into the church. In Acts 14, 27, it simply says, God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, in the midst of all of these good things, opposition has continued to increase. Persecution has increased to the point Paul was almost killed. He'd been stoned by a mob. They thought he had died, but he survived. Now, this would have caused many to, 
to just give up. Instead, as we've seen, Paul continued preaching. Now, all of this shows the attempts that are being made to stifle the preaching of the gospel. But it didn't stop the apostle Paul. It only inspired him. In chapter 21, when we get there in about three years, in chapter 21, verse 13, he would say this, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it didn't stop him at all. It just continued pressing him forward. Now, if all of these efforts to resist and quench the gospel, if all of these efforts can't stop the gospel, then what can undermine it? If they can't stop it from being preached, this is a very important thing. We're going to be looking at it today. If it cannot be stopped from being preached, what will, what will undermine it? The answer to that question is a simple one, preaching a different message, one that adds works, good works, human works, one that adds works to the grace of God. And that's what we're seeing here in this chapter. That's what we're looking at that took place in the early church. Notice in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15 how it says, Certain men came down from Judea, taught the brethren, taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. What can undermine preaching of the gospel, adding to it, changing it? And that's what we're seeing here. Now, let me identify these men. It seems that these men that we're looking at here in chapter 15 are men that we see later on in the writings of Paul from, the, from uh, when he wrote to the Galatians. Because in the book of Galatians, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. It would seem that there were some who came in who were not genuine believers. We'll look at that in a moment a little bit more, but they undermined the message of the gospel. How'd they do that? They did it by adding to it. See, the gospel message, this is important, especially in our day. I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. The gospel has to be preached as it is. There's not to be any adding to it or subtracting from it. It just be preached. That's why, that's why we'll go through the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because it has to be taught, because in these last days, especially we're seeing it more and more, there are messages being preached that aren't, are, are not gospel messages. They're opening up the book. They're opening up the Bible. They're preaching as from it, but they're adding to it. And so from the beginning, this kind of thing actually began to take place. The enemy tried to undermine. He had attempted to infiltrate through Ananias and Sapphira. Now he's undermining the gospel by adding to the message of grace, adding the law, adding works to it, the law of Moses. And so he's undermining the gospel by adding to it. In Deuteronomy 12, 32, Moses wrote, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Now, notice how he begins when he says, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. These are self-appointed teachers who are undermining the truth. They're insisting that circumcision, according to the law of Moses, is necessary for salvation. They're saying that Christians need to obey the law of Moses. And these visitors from Judea would refuse fellowship with uncircumcised people. Now, it's interesting that they had come to Antioch where the Gentiles had dominated, and still they're insisting the church not allow people in who don't follow their rules. They want to combine the law of Moses with the saving grace of God. And it's typical with error, mixing the two ends up in spiritual bondage. The result of doing this would be that they ultimately would put their trust in their own good works and their ability to follow commands. And they'll begin to trust in their works rather than in the grace of God. 
Somebody once wrote, the teaching that salvation is by human works is the foundation of all false religions and the longest-running heresy in the history of the Christian church. If you look into so many other belief systems, how do you go to heaven if they believe in heaven or some, uh, some afterlife? They're all built on human works, all of them, to do your best, to try your hardest, keep these rules. They're all built on that. Christianity is not. Christianity is built on the grace of God, the awareness that we can't keep the rules. That's why we need a Savior, because I can't do that which I desire to do, because I can't be as loving as I want to be, as caring as I would like to be. I can't be those things. I need help. Other religious systems will teach you that you can work and do your best and become great at it, but not one of them can make you as good as Jesus Christ who knew no sin and never had done any error. And so what we end up with is we end up a system with a system of works rather than an awareness of our need for the grace of God. And Paul never put up with that kind of thing. When you read your Bibles and you read the book of Philippians in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, listen to what he said. Paul said, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, who, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and, he said, who put no confidence in the flesh. We can't do it. Now, Barnabas and Saul had gone out to minister, and they did so under what is called church authority. Luke had recorded how the Spirit had given directions to the church leadership in the book of Acts. Remember in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, how he had said, uh, uh, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then the Scripture says, Having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. They sent them out. The Holy Spirit had spoken through the mouth of a prophet, separate them for the work I've called them to. In the authority of the church, they laid hands on them, and they sent them out to their ministry. But this is not so with these men. These men came without authorization. These men came, and they brought in error. These teachers from Judea weren't recognized by the church leadership. There are many commentators who would say they later became known as the Judaizers. They undoubtedly claimed to recognize Jesus as a promised Messiah. They also would have asserted that they recognized the necessity of his death. Because if they hadn't, they wouldn't have had a, uh, have had a hearing in the church. But the problem is, is they're trying to improve the gospel of Jesus and in doing so are destroying the grace of God. It added man's efforts to God's grace. And by doing so, they're emptying grace of its power. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's the power of the gospel to save, and it's the power of the gospel to transform lives. Our lives are not transformed by human wisdom, nor are our lives transformed by human eloquence. There are a lot of people who like to go to places to hear, including churches, to hear the eloquent preacher or the wise preacher. But his wisdom and eloquence isn't what's going to save you. It's the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're saved and transformed through the power of the gospel of grace. See, man's laws and religious laws can restrict by behavior but they can't change my evil nature. The reason I do evil is because I am by nature evil. And only the gospel can give me a new heart. If any man be in Christ, it's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not my efforts, not my attempts to do good, not my trying so hard to be holy, it's the gospel of grace that saves. It isn't adding my efforts to God's grace because that dilutes it and empties it of its power. It's my learning to rely on God and say, God, be merciful unto me. I'm wicked and I'm sinful and I'm in need and I can't do it without you. And that takes on my part a willingness to admit and actually try to exercise some humility to realize that I'm not as good as I think I am. Now, these men, again, are self-appointed. 
They were not recognized by the church as teachers. They didn't meet the approval of the leaders of the body of Christ. Again, Barnabas and Saul had been sent out to minister under church authority, but they weren't. They came without authorization, and they brought error. They were teaching circumcision is necessary for salvation, as is following what is called the law of Moses. And by adding to the gospel of grace, they actually created a different gospel. You see, it's by grace that we've been saved and not by our works. In Romans 3.24, Paul said it like this. He said, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's how you were saved. That's how I was saved. You know, this month I celebrate my 53rd anniversary of coming to faith in Christ. 53 years. Yeah, praise the Lord. Thank you for, thank you for that. But it, yeah, 53 years. And, I, and I, I haven't forgotten. I don't think I'm supposed to forget what it was like to live without him. I, I haven't forgotten. And I haven't forgotten that point in my life when I was 19, almost 20, where I had begun to realize that there was something wrong with me. It took a lot. It took a lot for me to admit that. But that I would actually finally say there is just something wrong with me. Because up to that point, I thought something was wrong with everybody else. It's like you did. It's somebody else. Somebody else's problem. If they'd only done this. I didn't have this. I didn't have that. I didn't have these advantages. All of those things. And finally, I still remember, and I won't go into this other than as I'm remembering, just saying this. I do, I do remember that point in my life where I began to finally admit to myself. And I finally told my dad this because I'd been arrested for burglarizing a jewelry store. And I told my dad when he picked me up. No, this was another time. This is when I smashed into a pole driving drunk. And they put me in L.A. County. And my dad picked me up. And as he was driving me home, I turned to my father and I looked at him. The first time I ever said it out loud, and I said to my father, I'm sick. I'm sick. My dad sent me to a psychologist. But my sickness wasn't simply a mental way of thinking. It was a sinful nature. And I was doing that which pleased myself and my flesh. And it wasn't until I heard the message of the gospel, like you. I heard a message that said, you can't do it. You need to give up. You need to let go. You're not good. You'll never be good. There'll always be something about you that's bad until you come to Jesus who can change your life from the inside, you see? And, that, and that, that's what God does. He changes you from the inside because you can dress up a monkey in a tuxedo. It's still a monkey because the nature hasn't been changed. You can dress up the outside, but it takes it from the inside. And God works from the inside. And that's why the gospel of grace is so important. Because God doesn't want to clean up just your outside. He wants to begin on the inside. Now, when this is taking place, how did Paul and Barnabas react to the message? Uh, well, Paul felt that the loving thing to do was to get along with them, encourage them to continue teaching this. After all, who is Paul to judge them? They had a right to preach their truth. As long as they brought Jesus into their, into their teachings, that's all that really matters, right? There's a lot of people who think that today. As long as you talk about Jesus and use his name, it's all okay. Don't judge them. How did they respond? Notice verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They didn't just roll over and say, it's okay. You see, these false brethren insisted that they were right, and they were dogmatic about it. So Paul and Barnabas vehemently disagreed, and they didn't give ground for a single moment. The disagreement was so important that it had to be taken to the highest level. It needed to be taken to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. 
And so what happens, as we're seeing, is the church sent Paul, Barnabas, and others to Jerusalem to get an official answer from the leadership of the body of Christ. You see, persecution and opposition was something they accepted. That's something they were, they were prepared for. They knew. Jesus had told them, you're going to suffer persecution for my name's sake. They knew that. They knew there was going to be opposition. They knew people would revile them. They knew people would physically harm them. They knew people would do things. They knew that they were prepared for that. But this is more serious because this is going to the heart of the gospel itself. This is a foundational truth of the gospel. It has to be defended. And so they're being sent, verse 3, being sent on their way by the church. They passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and, and it caused great joy to all the brethren. So as they're going, they're sharing what's taking place. When it says being sent on their way, just as an aside, being sent speaks of being accompanied and supplied for the journey. They were traveling south. They were going to Jerusalem. They passed through Phoenicia, which is modern Lebanon. Phoenicia had been evangelized after Stephen had died. They're going through Samaria, which is south of Phoenicia. The Samaritans early on had received the word of God. So as they're coming through, they're sharing the work of God. And, and the people who are hearing what God has been doing are, are experiencing great joy. And so things are, are going well for them in verse 4. And when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles, the elders. They reported all things that God had done with them. And so when it says they were received by the church, it speaks of a general gathering of the church, including the leadership. They had a church meeting. You see, when persecution had hit the church, the general membership had scattered. We saw that in Acts chapter 8 when it says that a great persecution arose against the church, which, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered except the apostles. So when persecution first hurt, hit the church, people began to move out. That actually caused people to spread the gospel through Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But the church wasn't completely eliminated. They were still gathering. God was still moving. The apostles had remained. Peter and John had left to evangelize. Well, Paul and Barnabas are now traveling south, and they're ministering to churches. And as they're speaking, the Gentiles are coming to faith. There's great joy. And hearing that the gospel is producing the fruit of salvation will always cause great joy. That's why when people receive the Lord, when an invitation is given for someone to, to open their hearts to Christ and to make an open confession of that, that's why the church claps. Because there's always going to be great joy when someone is rescued from judgment. In Luke 15, Jesus gave various parables of things that were lost but were found. He, he spoke of a lost sheep. He spoke of a lost coin. He spoke of a lost son. And the joy when they were found. In Luke 15, 10, he said, In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's rejoicing, notice, and I'll say this quickly, in the presence of God. I'm sorry, in the presence of angels. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. When you read that, Sometimes we think that the angels are rejoicing. But when you read your scriptures, you discover that the salvation to an angel is, is mysterious. They don't understand it. Why? Because the angels who fell remain fallen. The ones who didn't fall remain servants of God. I had a discussion with someone a few years ago who said that, that fallen angels could repent. And uh, even Satan could repent. And I said, you haven't read your Bible because Satan ends up in the lake of fire. There is no repentance for those who have fallen. The angels don't, they don't. There's no repentance for a fallen angel. He remains, it remains lost forever. So there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. And if the angels don't understand it's something mysterious that they desire to look into, Peter said, then who's rejoicing? The one rejoicing is God himself. It's God's joy when you're saved. He rejoices over you being saved. That's an amazing thing if you allow it to settle in, in into your heart. That when you opened your heart to him, it was joy in the presence of the angels because you, you got saved. Not that you're so important, not that I'm so important, but to him we are. 
and he rejoices. And so there is joy. If we don't have joy when someone gets saved, we're getting callous, don't you think? If we don't have joy when someone comes to faith in Christ, then maybe our Christianity isn't what it used to be. Because there was a time when somebody got saved, we would stand up and cheer and say, amen. So I need to always remember that. You see, if God rejoices over someone being found, so should we. And genuine believers rejoice when someone's saved. The joy of the church will not contrast with the harshness of Pharisees. It surpasses it. So it says in verse 4, they were received by the church. So Paul and Barnabas arrive, and they're welcomed by the church. And so they begin to share what's, what, what's happened. And, and that would include everything. They would share what God had done. That, that would include the miracles that God had performed, the healings that God had performed, the deliverance from demon possession that God had performed. But it would also include the pain and the suffering that they'd gone through. They would give in detail how they were run out of town, how they were hounded, how Paul had been stoned with these huge stones and left for dead. They would also speak of the multitudes of Gentiles who had been saved and, and how the Jewish uh, individuals were opposing, but they would rejoice, like I already read in Acts 14, 27, how God had opened the door of faith to Gentiles. Now, I, I mentioned that when Peter first explained this, the Jerusalem church had accepted it. Peter had told them that God baptized them in the same gift of the Spirit. And in Acts eleven eighteen, they had said, well, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. That's what they did. Well, the Gentiles have been granted repentance to life, and they accept, accepted them in. Now, remember, the Gentiles were not circumcised. And remember, though they may have been God-fearers, they may have attended synagogue and were aware of Jewish teachings, they had never fully been converted to being Jews. And so what's happening is these people are coming in and saying, now, wait a minute, they can't understand the depth of grace until they've understood the depth of the law and the demands of the law. And so in order to be able to be understanding of the grace of God, they need to know the yoke, the burden of the law of Moses. And that's their argument right now. At first, when it's been stated, and Peter said, this is what happened. I spoke to Cornelius and his household and some others, and he said, while I was speaking, the Spirit descended upon them. They began to speak in other languages. He said, and, and who's to forbid them from receiving water baptism, seeing that they've received the same gift we did? And, and the people who heard them the first time, heard them the first time, they said, well, then who are we to say that God hasn't? Of course, God has granted repentance to them too. It was accepted, but not this time. Notice verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Wait a minute. It's not that easy. Now, these people couldn't rejoice with the others over what God was doing. And in the midst of the joy of salvation, their legalism broke out. This kind of thing happens. This kind of thing, not the exact thing, obviously, but this kind of thing happened in the early days of the Jesus movement, of the Jesus revolution, as some have called it. You, you, you get saved, and the first thing they're doing is they're saying, okay, if you're really saved, put on some shoes. You know, Chuck speaks about the time when, my pastor Chuck Smith speaks of the time when, when the hippies were coming into the church sitting in the pews, and, and he speaks of how they would not wear shoes and how their toes would get stuck in the communion cup holders. And they, they do, you know, they do, for sure. You know how I know that? Because my toe got stuck in a communion cup holder. I remember that when I, when, I, when I heard him, I said, oh, I understand that because you cross your legs and your toe gets stuck in the communion cup holder. And, and that actually was taking place, those things. There was a church in, uh, in Indiana that when a hippie got saved, he would come, this is a true story, they would, well, the man, the man would come forward, young man would come forward, he would pray, and this is the truth, as God is my witness. They would take him into the back where we'd usually counsel, 
and they had a barber waiting. True story. And they would have him get a haircut to prove that he was really saved. We've added, we've added law to grace for the longest time. We had people. I experienced this as an assisting pastor. We were renting a church, and the church that we rented for our Sunday morning services would not allow us to have drums in the main sanctuary, and you couldn't use electric guitars. Because, and this is, some of you are too young to know this, some of you old people may remember, they called that voodoo music. You can't have that voodoo music with those jungle drums playing. True story. So when we had um, um, concerts, evangelistic concerts, we had to go into the fellowship hall if we were going to have electric uh, musical instruments and drums. Church hasn't changed a whole lot since then. You have a tattoo, you can't be saved. You can't possibly be saved. You have piercings, you can't possibly be saved. I don't know why you do. I don't know why you like pain like that. I've seen people with pierced belly buttons, and I almost vomit just to see that. I, oh, that pain must have been horrible, but that's them. Does that mean they're not saved? We have to be very careful that we don't judge on the outer appearance, because man has a tendency of doing that. We have to be very careful that we don't begin to tell somebody you're not saved because you don't do what I think you're supposed to do, because you don't live your faith in Christ the way that I think you're supposed to. We have to be very careful. Now, there are times when people will be, will be Christians who are living outside of the will of God because they're not adhering to the, the Bible. Of course, we use the word of God to bring correction, to encourage them so that they can walk the path that God would have for them. Of course, that's why we study the Bible. But when someone's saved and they have these big old ear, ear things in their ear, piercings, whatever, who am I to tell them you can't know Jesus Christ? Because I've seen these guys, I've seen them go out, the tattooed people, really tattooed, and they have, uh, they have a ready audience. People who also have tattoos look at them, they speak to them, and God uses that. So I, I'm very open to however God wants to do whatever he wants to do, I want him to do it, as long as it's the gospel of grace and we don't bring legalism into their life. You know, that's what the Lord has called us to do. I'm very serious about that. Now, some of these, these people who were uh, upset um, are, are making this issue. Now, the belief in Jesus started amongst them even when Jesus, this kind of thing, amongst the Pharisees, even when Jesus was on earth. And in John 12, 42, it says, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. So we know that there were some, and I want you to notice again in verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. There were people who had come out of that religious denomination, if you will, who were Pharisees that we see in Scripture, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were formerly Pharisees, as well as the Apostle Paul himself. But unlike Paul, these Pharisees had not relinquished their Mosaic traditions. They believed in the resurrection, and they believed that Christ was Messiah. But they were so ingrained with tradition, they were not letting it go. There are some religious traditions that stay with you for a long time. You may come out of a place where they had blessed prayer mats or artarian benches or dancing in the aisles with the tambourines, shouting in the church. You may have come out of that. You may have come out of a church with infant baptism or prayer to angels and saints and praying for the dead and veneration of Mary, holy water statues, things like that. And, and you get saved and, and you hold on to those things because that's how you were taught. That's what you think is true. And some of those things take a while to fall away. Some of them do. You may have come from this particular background. We'll say that you were at one time a, a, a vegetarian. You wouldn't eat, eat meat because it was right to eat an animal and you get saved. You come forward. I don't walk up with a hamburger and say, eat it or you're going to hell. There are things that you, there are things that you eventually they, you begin reading the word of God and the truth sets you free. And as the truth sets you free, you say, well, that's not in scripture. Therefore, why would I? That's what happened to me when I got saved, when I was a brand new believer. You know, I, my own personal testimony, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and my sister-in-law at that time had a 
huge family Bible, and I went to go visit her, and I opened up her Bible while she was in the other room, and I started going from A to Z, uh, the traditions I had been taught. And, and at that day, from Assumption of Mary all the way to the end, I was looking to see which of these are in Scripture, because if they're in Scripture, I should adhere to them. If they're not, I won't. So I began that way within two, three weeks of getting saved. If it's not found here, I don't want it. I'm not going to follow it. It has to be in here. And so some traditions that we have uh, are traditions that we held to that are not necessary, and that's what's taking place here. And, and again, sometimes religious habits are hard to break free of. We can think that they are genuine expressions of real faith. So they're saying believers should receive circumcision and, and, and keep the law of Moses. And if they don't do that, they're not really believers in Messiah. So this is a big thing. So verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. So there's a meeting that has to take place. Notice who is who's part of it. It's the apostles and elders. Now, this is of utmost importance. The question, shall we command Gentiles to become Jewish? How can people who have never been under the law understand grace might be the question. So they get together, verse 7, when they had, and when there had been much dispute, the apostle Peter, Peter rose up and he said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And so the apostle Peter stands up. Now, when it speaks about disputation, they're disputing, it's not an angry argument. They're actually having a sober discussion, inquiring about this. And even amongst the leaders, notice this, the solution is not easily arrived at. Now, Paul had seen converts among Gentiles in various lands. Multitudes had come to faith in Christ, and they hadn't been circumcised. Peter had preached the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius, Cornelius and his family and household became followers of Jesus Christ, and they weren't converts to Judaism. So the question would have to be, can they really be saved? And that's why Peter rose up and spoke. And he began to share with them what the Lord had taught him about this. He, he boldly encouraged, notice this, by, by inference, he said he's, bold, he's boldly encouraging them to unity. And he says in verse 7, you know that a good while ago God chose among us. It's estimated that the conversion of Cornelius had been about 10 years earlier. And so he's making it clear. He's saying, brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so he's pointing out that this is what took place. Now, if you want to determine when and how this all started, he's saying, Begin with God, and then look to me. Because it's God who chose to move among the Gentiles. And of all the apostles, he chose to use me to open the door of heaven to them. And that's the point he's making. Verse 8, so God who knows the heart, according, uh, uh, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So God, who used me to draw them, which was his will, gave them as a demonstration of his approval and acceptance, the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice something here. I want you, I'm going to read this again and develop this for a moment. Notice verse 8 again. God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit. I want you to think for a minute. Those of you who have been going through Acts with me, and you want to, I want you to remember this. Cornelius, when you read the passage in the book of Acts chapter 10, I want you to think about this. Peter was preaching. He didn't give them an invitation. He didn't say, bow your head if you want to receive Christ. He didn't do that. We do that, but he didn't. 
He was yet speaking when the Holy Spirit came upon them. He was still preaching when God sovereignly moved upon them. And Cornelius did not pray one of our, what we call, you know, a prayer of faith or receiving Christ. He didn't verbally acknowledge Christ. But his heart had been converted. So that helps us remember that invitations and even a sinner's prayer isn't, isn't, isn't required. Now, I know that today, and I want to develop this with you because I know how that can sound. We, we have, um, all of us in, in the 21st century church, and prior to that, actually, have accepted as tradition, and it's not a bad one. That's why I'm not preaching against it. I'm just trying to explain something to you. You know, through, through um, crusade revivalism that came not just in this century or last century, but, you know, all the way back in the 17 and 1800s, there were evangelists who traveled and preached the gospel. But at a certain point in church history, we began to give open invitations and crusades, and it's become kind of a normal thing for a lot of people. And they think, because I've been asked this question, that's why I'm saying this. They think, well, unless someone comes forward, they're not receiving Christ. Well, I love to give invitations, and when I do, I love to see people saved, of course. But there are a lot of people here in the church who've been saved who never came forward at an invitation. My wife, Marie, never came forward at an invitation. I still wonder if she's saved, but she never <laughs> came forward at an invitation. She never did. She received Christ right where she was, and God changed her life. When Cornelius was listening to the apostle Peter preach, God was reading his heart. And as God was reading his heart, God bestowed the gift of the Holy Spirit upon him and those who were listening. He acknowledged that faith by giving them the Spirit. He did for them what he had done for us on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 10, 44 and 46 through 46, it says, listen, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. God reads the heart. There was not an invitation. There was not even a recorded prayer of repentance. Peter didn't say, receive Christ. God sovereignly saw their hearts. Like it says in one, Psalm 139, 1 and 2, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He goes on in verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know my heart. I've had people, numbers of people in this fellowship who have approached me over the years who have said, I received Christ when you said, close your eyes and pray, if, and you prayed for me. And that's how it works. I think that invitations are important. I do. I'll be doing those uh, uh, on Christmas, I always do. You know, at different times, I, I, I feel it's a proper thing to do at that moment. But I also know that God can open, can, can speak to your heart right where you're at. And that's what happened. And that's what the Apostle Peter speaking about. Notice how he says in verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. Salvation comes by faith for Jew and Gentile not only by, uh, uh, not by uh, obedience to religious rules. Uh, Paul made that clear in Romans 2, 28 and 29. Listen, he says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He's a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Remember that Abraham is called the father of the Jews. He lived 600 or so years before Moses gave the law. And, and this means he didn't receive the circumcision of the law, and he couldn't keep the law. 
But in Romans 4, verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. How was he saved? Through the grace of God. And so he asks in verse 10, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? The yoke of the law. It speaks of the severity of keeping the whole law. You see, in James 2, verse 10, it says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I may not have ever committed adultery, but I may have killed somebody. I may not have ever killed somebody, but I have stolen something. I may not have ever physically had a, an improper relationship physically, but my heart has done so. It, it, it reveals the intents of the heart, what we really are. And it's severe because you can't keep every bit of it. It was a very heavy burden that no one could carry. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus said it like this, speaking of the religious leaders, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And that's why he did what he did. He did it for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's why in his invitation to us, he said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You cannot bear the yoke of the law. You can't do it. You're not perfect. That's why you need a Savior. And that's why he could say in verse 11, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. It's by God's grace. If we are saved by grace, why would Gentiles be saved by the law? And Paul would say to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 3, to them, he said, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? My pastor is Chuck Smith. I had the privilege of serving on on his board while still alive. And I would go to meetings for Calvary Chapel Pastor Conference meetings. And, and I've shared this before. We would be seated at tables. There'd be people from all over the nation sitting at the tables. And we'd be talking amongst ourselves, visiting and laughing with one another. And the room would be filled with 10, 20 people. And, and we're talking. And the minute Chuck would walk in the room, like a bunch of kids with the school teacher coming in, we're all kind of laughing and all. And then here comes Chuck. And whenever Chuck would walk in, we all got quiet. Not because we were afraid of that mean daddy, but because we respected him. Because our pastor walked into the room, and we're going to wait to hear from him. And we got quiet. We all just sat there Chuck would walk in. I still can see him in my mind's eyes. He'd come and he'd sit down. He'd get quiet for another moment. And he always had the first, this was the first question as far as I can remember. That would be asked of him. It was this, Chuck, what are you afraid of? What do you see as a trend in the church that you're concerned of? He always said the same thing. He said, what am I concerned with? Having begun in the spirit, are we going to be made perfect by the flesh? Pastor Chuck Smith was a man of grace, and he taught us to have grace too. Not because we're following Pastor Chuck, but because Pastor Chuck was following Christ. And God's word teaches us how important the grace of God is. You and I know, and I'll close with a couple of thoughts. You and I know that no matter how much you want to be perfect, only I can be. No, you cannot. You cannot be. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more evil you see yourself as being. Not at the moment, but you recognize your own impurities and imperfections further on and further in. If you look at yourself in a mirror 
by the moonlight as you stand outside with a quarter moon, you look pretty good. But if you walk into the house in a bright light with a mirror, you see that you're not. You see the imperfections. The brighter the light, the more the imperfection. So when you first come to faith in Christ, it's like you're out there with a quarter moon in a cloudy night. You don't see yourself as bad as you really are until you start walking with the perfect one. And when you start walking with the one who is perfect, the closer you get to him, the more evil you know yourself to be and the need you have for a savior. It becomes very obvious. Without Christ, I can do nothing. And that's what Paul taught us, and that's what is true for us. And so you can't make yourself good. Does that mean that you shouldn't follow the things of the Lord? No, it means you shouldn't rest on your own works. You should pursue the Lord, aware of your weakness, and also aware of the need that you have, because through him you can do all things, but without him you can do nothing. And when you realize that, you gain a wisdom that's of the Lord, and you become to realize, you come to realize, God, I, I really need you. And, and it's the opposite effect. People will, will see you differently than you see yourself. People will see you as a loving, caring, compassionate person, but you know your own heart, and you know that without Christ, you're not that. And it's not like you've got this terrible self-identity or whatever. It simply means I know who I am without him. And so rather than tell the church, you know what? In order for you to really know Jesus, go through these rules and regulations. In this day, it was a very important thing. You need to be circumcised and begin to follow the law of Moses or else you don't understand who Messiah is. And, and Peter said, why would we put a yoke upon them that we ourselves could not bear? Why would we make them do that which we failed at? And that's a very good argument. As this is taking place, finally, verse 12, all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And they're listening. As they were listening to Peter, they're now listening to Paul and Barnabas again. They share. This time, special emphasis is given to the works that God had done. Jesus had worked miracles. The Jews had received miracles. So had Gentiles. It's an evidence God is moving and the testimony of these pillars of the church is settling the concern. The decision is about to be made. And we'll see that next week. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.